Good morning. How's it going? Well, um, we uh, have lost, um, or we're at the um, uh, end of losing our daughter for three weeks. She was gone on a camp for three weeks. And it's actually interesting when um, someone that you love so much exits your life for a three-week period. Um, it's almost like, what happened to our family? Um, and so good when they live in the room again. It almost feels like, hey, this is normal. Um, we get to be us. You can leave the other little ones at home and do stuff again. <laughs> There's blessings having, having everyone back um, at home. But in church, uh, we just want to give you a bit of feedback over the last uh, uh, term. Just a few things that's happened. Um, Gary, those who were part of the Arana dinners a uh, couple of weeks, last week? Yeah, what an event. Uh, the stories that we were hearing about people connecting, people just spending time together. We did something similar in um, Tulum, um, a bit different, so I would recommend that. Great place to have a Arana family dinner. We couldn't put the picture on. Some people were in bikinis and that kind of stuff, so we just, not really. Um, but Arana dinner is a great place to connect. One of the things that excited me is uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had our kids' church actually connect with Muna Park. Um, and uh, they just went and celebrated and uh, just spent some time there without an actual program. Some of the things that happened here was the kids just deciding out of their own to um, uh, entertain the, the older folk, uh, just to do little things. And beautiful to see how they came prepared with their own little thing as kids, but we didn't, we didn't plan it. It was something that they wanted to do and special moments that will continue. I think uh, our Father's Day moment was, was great. Um, I would love it if we had breakfast every morning. Uh, before church. Wouldn't you like that? Um, I didn't eat this morning, so <laughs> I would love it. Um, and uh, last one is one of the two, two, two quick things, our steps process. Um, steps is a journey where people are, are, are stepping into to discover their gifts, their passions, and just a place for them to serve in church. We're going to explore an online version of Steps at Arana next term. So um, keep your eyes open for that, where you don't have to come in uh, to, to attend, but we're actually going to host it via technology over the internet. So that'll be um, good. That's as far as I know how it works. From there, other people will take um, responsibility for it. But um, something that we celebrate, we started Alpha with just over 20 people attending Alpha. Um, and it's interesting. Some of them have been Christians for many years, and some of them are brand new, and they come with questions that you look at and you think, God, help us, <laughs> because we aren't equipped to answer all of that, but Alpha as a journey is incredible, um, just one of those tools where we want to ask you to keep praying for the people attending Alpha at this moment, um, that that would be one of those circuit-breaking moment um, experiences in their life that would change the direction, the course of where they're heading towards. Now, I get... The privilege this morning of sharing uh, on the next Beatitude, and I read a, an interesting story where a guy that usually, or the machine that usually did the job of painting lines on tarmac was broken. So they decided to bring in a hired um, uh, person to paint the lines on a newly furbished, resurfaced portion of a remote highway. So they got in a new guy, and the first day he painted nine kilometers on his own. Um, and the supervisor came in and said, well, brilliant. If you can continue with that, in a few days, we'll, we'll put you on our permanent staff. The next day, I only did five kilometers. And the day after, three. And then, one. So the supervisor came in and he said, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> That's not the way you keep a job. He said, but just tell me, just before I fire you, 
why did your production go from this to that? So I said, just have mercy on me, man. He said, it's difficult to walk all the way back to the paint <laughs> and back to keep. <laughs> Sometimes we just need a bit of mercy. Um, AJ told me a story of him when he was at school when um, someone took a photograph of him um, and he complained to the photographer about just what he saw in the picture. Um, and he said, this picture doesn't do me justice. And the photographer said, you don't need justice, you need mercy. Um, so, uh, Blessed are the merciful. <laughs> I had to work hard to get some of those. Um, blessed are the merciful. Um, it's, it's, it's actually one of those interesting little um, journeys for me when I thought about speaking on this. It's probably one of the things that if I look at my own life, it's never been something that I've associated with um, as I have with some of the other Beatitudes. Um, that mercy for me doesn't come naturally. I've got to work hard at it. Any one of us in that space? <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not the first step. So I like giving my best. And coming out of a house where my father was an army officer, it wasn't about mercy. It was about performance. You've got you've to go for it. And playing tennis, um, one of the things that, that no one has ever told me to do was I've, I've never had someone, um, has never had to ask me to, to go and practice. Not something that, that I've ever been asked to do. It was always a drive that comes out of myself because it's the, that old saying out of our household, if you want to do something, if you want to be something, you've got to work for it. Um, and don't expect mercy. <laughs> so for a long time in ministry, um, mercy was not something that actually came naturally to me. It wasn't something that I would think if I looked at, especially the first 10, 15 years of my ministry journey, that it just came because of a, a position of, of my heart. Then something happened, and I don't have time to go through the whole story, where one afternoon, um, someone invited me to come and to have a look at what they were doing in one of our townships. I looked at the project, they were feeding kids, they were doing a great job, and, and I asked them, I said, okay, that's all good, feeding kids and doing great stuff for them there, but what happens to the kids if they go home? And he said, Clinton, you're the first leader that's ever asked that question. I said, well, I want to see one of the places. It's, it's great seeing all these nice buildings and, and schools and everything of kids being there, but what are we actually doing for them when they go home? And he said, I want to show you something. He took me to the shack. Interesting thing, um, when we walked through the door, there was a lady about 70 years old lying on a bed, dying of AIDS. She was the primary carer of nine children living in that building. The only food, only substance that she had to eat for the last three days was the antiretroviral medicine. That was all she had to eat because everything she has, she gives to the kids and it's scraps. I stood there that day and I realized that I can never walk away from that um, and leave it just as. It was in the middle of the, uh, the global financial crisis um, I had the option of taking it to our church leadership team, and I knew they would say, no, we don't have any money. So that Sunday evening, I stood on the pulpit, and I just announced that next weekend, we are rebuilding that house. I'm not an architect. I realized that day that all the engineers were sitting there. Said, you were doing what? <laughs> but that Monday evening, a squad of about 200 people started pitching at our church, building, and 
um, bringing stuff, and that weekend we rebuilt a house um, for those kids. It changed my outlook, because from the outset, I was entering into this as, well, at least we're showing mercy to them, <laughs> not realizing that this whole experience was actually bringing mercy to us. That the people that changed most wasn't the kids living there, and they were so thankful, and they appreciated the mercy. That was actually the trigger of something so beautiful that happened in our church that changed the way we saw community engagement for many years, and still is functioning. So when I, just talking about mercy this morning, I want to ask you to think about a moment in your life, in your journey, where Mercy was so much more than just doing something for someone that, that is in need. Because we've categorized those people well, haven't we? Those mercy gifted people. So some of us are here and we're building church and we're living life and we're doing our, our good stuff. And then on the, in the corner we've got a bunch of mercy gifted people. And they are the people that like to walk to the broken and the oppressed and, and the people that, that are living in the tragedies of life. And, and we segregate a small group of people saying, you guys are so good with them. But then, Jesus comes with a statement. He says, blessed are the merciful. That there's a blessing on those who are, are merciful. Now, interesting is, when the Greek tried to translate it, they used the word makarios, and we've talked about it, that it says to be celebrated, to be, to be honored. But when the Hebrew spoke of the word blessed, it's not proclaiming a blessing over, it's actually indicating that there will be blessing based on the choices and the direction of your life. So the Hebrew word blessed says, you are blessed, your life will be blessed if you align your life with this. It's not just a proclamation of blessing, it's not just a celebration of blessing, it's if you align yourself to this, there will be blessing. So the two different versions of blessing, Baruch, which is proclaiming a blessing over, or the word aros, um, which is all about Psalm 1. Blessed are those who, and then defines the state of being blessed, that aligns their life towards righteousness, towards blessing. When Jesus spoke of it, he says, guys, you've got to realize that there's a blessing for people who intentionally choose to align their lives towards the poor, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And specifically this morning, there's a blessing connected to those who are merciful. Now, understanding something of the Sermon of the Mount is you've got you've to find the balance between what Jesus is trying to do from Matthew 4 to Matthew 10. He's doing two things. He's showing us the way of Christ and he's showing us the power of Christ. And those two worlds intersect. They aren't separate. So if you, if you listen and if you read the, the Sermon on the Mount and you read the precursor and the after, you, you, you understand that there was something about Jesus' teaching, but then he also went and he healed people. So there was a showcasing of the, the new kingdom that was coming. Jesus did this because in his mind he was convinced that heaven was now invading earth. See, in our mind when we hear the word heaven, what do you think of? You think of? Something you enter when you die. Jesus had a different reference of heaven. Heaven was where God reigned supreme. 
So every time he spoke of heaven or every time he spoke of the kingdom, when he says heaven is coming or the kingdom is coming, he isn't saying you've got to die in order to go to something good. He's saying, guys, you've got to realize that me coming, me being on the planet is now the announcement that everything that you were waiting for is now coming to earth. That yes, we'll die someday, and yes, there will be a glorious kingdom in heaven, and, 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 and I don't even want to go in to try and define what that, that means, because the Bible has so many different options for you to choose on. Some of it is we're going, and some of it it's coming, and you've got to find your space in that. But one thing Jesus said is, from now on, me being on the planet is announcing the fact that the kingdom has come to earth. That's solidified in the fact that when Jesus taught us how to pray, what did he, what did he teach us? Yeah. Your kingdom come, your will be done, as soon as we die. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven. So there's something about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is teaching, and what Jesus is showing is the fact that suddenly the beauty of heaven, the transforming presence of heaven is now coming down to earth, and his life, his teaching, his showcasing the miracles is the announcement that the kingdom, everything that you've been waiting for is now a present day reality. So we can't wait for the great escape to take place. Before we enter into fullness, it's here. It's a reality in our life. Now, now, this message was so different to what was actually taking place. If you look at first century Rome, Israel was um, included in, in, in the Roman Empire at that stage. Um, mercy was not seen as a virtue, but it was seen as a massive sign of weakness. So you were not to be merciful if you were a Roman citizen. One Roman philosopher called mercy a disease of the soul. That if you showed mercy, there was something sick in you. To them, mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man or a real Roman citizen. They glorified courage, justice, discipline, and absolute power. And only referred to mercy when they decided to not kill people. So they would say mercy. The only time that they showcased mercy was, okay, I won't kill you. But for the rest, it was showcasing what the Roman Empire was all about, and it had nothing to do with real mercy. They looked down on mercy because they saw it as a weakness, and a weakness was despised, despised above all other human limitations. So mercy was so hard to find in the Roman Empire because it was against culture. It was something that was so different. And suddenly Jesus comes, and he makes a statement. He says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the ones that are willing to show mercy to others. Which in that context was such a big challenge, because suddenly what was at the top, Jesus was turning around saying, you want your own righteousness, your own position, your own status. You want all of those? He said, no, you've got to change it around. We've got to recognize that what Jesus was doing in the Beatitudes was actually changing the whole system, the way of living upside down, saying that what you have been going for in life isn't the most important thing anymore. You've got to consider that the best way up is to go down. One of those things is considering the merciful. Now, the definition of mercy 
interesting. I've started with a basic one. It's a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. Greek word for mercy is the, the word eleos. It's used in relation to misery and its relief. So just to put that in context, when we think about grace, grace is all for the forgiveness of sins and empowering us to discover new identity. But there's something different about mercy. Mercy is actually aimed towards relieving the misery of people. So when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, what is he saying? He isn't saying, hey, just be kind to them. He's saying, blessed are those who are intentionally focused on relieving the misery of others. See, grace is God's free gift displayed in the forgiveness of sin. Grace is extended to humanity as they are guilty. Mercy is extended to them as they are stuck in misery. That's the IB um, dictionary. So thinking about it and just looking at, at ways to define what mercy is. Mercy is the ability to absorb the failings of others. That was so different to how I grew up. Because if I made mistakes, guess what that was? You've got to wear the consequences of your mistakes. And we are so conditioned to conse consequences that sometimes we think it's an act of grace to allow people just to carry the consequences. And I want to say there's a, a divine connection between mercy and judgment and mercy and righteousness that I don't have time to go in this morning. But if it's in your ability to act, we've got it. You have to have the capacity as a person of mercy to absorb the failings of other, others. Um, Scott McKnight said, mercy is being driven by an irresistible love for the oppressed, uh, the downtrodden, the sick, the outcast, the anxious, the tortured, those suffering injustice. Actually coming to a place that you allow the love of God to so transform you that the only natural response is to be drawn towards brokenness. To be drawn towards the sick, the outcast, the anxious, the tortured, the downtrodden, everyone that suffers injustice. Now, again, it can sound good. If you look at the early church, that's exactly what they did. If you read the Gospels, guess what Jesus was doing? Constantly walking the streets, and what did he find on the streets? People who were sick, oppressed, tortured challenged. He wasn't waiting in a church building for them to come. He was constantly walking towards, constantly asking the questions, where are they? What opportunities do I have to do something about that? And it's one of those things that we've got to consider in our life. What does it look like for us to be driven by an irresistible love? Not to say, well, if anything comes to my door, I'll do something about it. What does it look like for a church to be so driven by irresistible love for the oppressed that we will walk outside of these doors to go searching for it. To ask the question, in this community, where does the oppression sit? Where's the outcast? Where's the sick? Where's the anxious? Where's the tortured? Where is the broken? See, comfort says, well, I'll do something if they come to me. Calling says, I'll go with the mandate of the kingdom and I'll search for opportunities for those who need mercy. See, merciful, the merciful will seek out those who are meshed up in brokenness, sin, and guilt. And one thing we saw in the life of Christ, that they will be willing to sacrifice their own honor for the sake of those who need mercy. 
Does that sound like the incarnation for you? The Word, God, Son of God, becoming flesh. Why? Actually walking away from His own honor, His own status, His own glory, deciding to become one of us. He came and searched us out. He entered our world to show us mercy. It's probably one of the things that when I look at this and when I read through this, I realize one of the most natural things for someone that has allowed the presence of God, the love of God um, to, saturate, to saturate their being, one of the most natural things would be to walk after mercy. So my little definition, mercy, is entering the tragedies, the failings, and the injustices of those with compassion and sorrow for one another is stricken by misery, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate suffering. One of the things that, that I believe we should be pursuing, we should be chasing. That word compassion, great word, it's a feeling of deep empathy. Um, it's that ability to enter the pain of other people. It's not just standing on the side saying, oh, wish it could be better. The whole notion of compassion and empathy says that, that you need to, to trust what God has done in you so much that you can actually walk into the pain of other people, trusting that you would come out um, with them on the other side, but that you would show them mercy. So sources of mercy is something that we've got to consider. How, does this, um, how is this actually birthed in our hearts? Now, again, Scott McKnight, um, just in a comment, just changed my perspective on this completely. He said that there is a, um, a, a, an intricate connection between the fourth, fifth, and the sixth beatitude that we don't often see. Someone else, one of the Hebrew scholars said, they call it a triastic structure. Now that's a big word that just says that actually what happened in Hebrews, uh, in Matthew 5, 6 to 8, is they sandwiched the big one with two comments above and below. So what's the two comments above? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It's blessed are, the, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And the one straight after is blessed is the pure in heart, for they will see God. So they say that those two comments were actually there to empower this one statement. The realization that blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy is the thing that Jesus actually wants to emphasize. And if you look at the whole triastic structure of the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It's actually the one that everything culminates into top and bottom. So everything is a, is a sandwich leading towards blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So there's something more in this than what I've considered and what most people have considered, I think. And one of the discoveries is actually understanding that um, our delving into the concept of righteousness and purity will help us understand more about mercy. That's the interesting part. So understanding righteousness um, is, is so interesting because if you look at what the Jewish culture did to righteousness, um, is, it's, it's so interesting. Exodus reveals God as a God who is um, slow to anger, gracious, merciful, not quick to judge. So that's the big revelation out of the book of Exodus. Suddenly the book of Leviticus enters in. And uh, Leviticus is an attempt where the Jewish culture takes the Ten Commandments, suddenly adds another 603 commandments to the 
to the team, saying that um, God can't be that nice. We've got to try and define him and put him in boxes so that we get him. So there were 613 different commandments just to help us unpack and live within the small little box of these 10 commandments. But then they added another 3,000 oral commandments that you had to live by, which just means that it was a culture. If you did anything outside of what they thought was right, guess what they did? You're wrong. And if you were wrong, you had to go to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice on your behalf. But before he could do that, you've got to pay. We haven't heard anything like that before, have we? Um, so you pay for your <laughs> sins to be pardoned. Jesus comes with a different view. If you look at the story of the um, woman that suffered with the issue of blood, um, a righteous person was a clean person. A woman that was suffering with the issue of blood for 12 years was seen as unclean for 12 years. Now you need to know what the definition of that unclean. If she touched that chair, you weren't allowed to touch it. Because if you had to touch it, you had to go to the priest to clean yourself. If you touched her, so every time you came in contact with anything that she came in contact with, guess what? Cost you money. So guess what society would have done to her? They would have completely marginalized, completely isolated her, saying that we don't do anything. If you um, suffered with that condition, you would get a letter from the priest saying that you're allowed to divorce her because she's unclean. Saying this because try and think in your mind what a woman went through, what that lady went through for 12 years, wasn't allowed any contact. Every time she, by accident, touched someone, bumped into someone, they had to go to the temple to clean themselves. She was oppressed, she was marginalized, she was, she was shoved, and suddenly we read the story of her pushing through the crowds. Now what's happening to all the people if she pushes through the crowds? Everyone becomes unclean. She touches the hem of Jesus' robe. Now you would think a priest, it was un, um, a priest wasn't allowed to touch anything unclean, a rabbi. Suddenly this lady comes and touches the hem of Jesus' robe. And instead of Jesus keeping it quiet, he announces, who touched me? To everyone around. Why? <laughs> because in that moment, he says, it's a purity of heart that will lead to you seeing God. It's not your ability to clean yourself. It's not the, the, the system that cleanses you. It's my proclamation over your life that will cleanse you. There's something in the space where righteousness has a complete different notion to what this, the Jewish system made of it. See, when we read the Old Testament and the New, the whole system, the, the system that brought people into bondage was all about staying away from evil. That, that righteousness was staying away from evil. Where if you understand the Hebrew root of the word tzedek, righteousness, it's all about giving yourself to something. That the Israel leadership was so concerned that people would give themselves to wrong thing that they designed this whole list, this whole system, 10 commandments that God gave Godly, beautiful, brilliant, suddenly 613, suddenly 3,000. Why? Because they didn't trust that people can live out of the desires of their hearts. They thought that the only way that people could live is to live out of restrictions, 
rules, and performance. The Hebrew word of righteousness speaks about the fact that it's not us withholding ourselves from evil, but us giving ourselves, us hungering and thirsting for something that sits at the core of our being. Even the word, if you look at um, the way the Hebrew language is designed, it has three symbols. A fish hook with bait on, an open door, and the back of a person's head. Those were the three symbols that defined the um, word tzadok. And what did it mean? (laughs) It actually meant that the desire of your heart is an open door that will lead you to humility. That the true desires of our heart, the righteousness, the, the thing that takes us towards something, the true essence that sits inside of us is the one thing that will open doors for you. And in opening doors, you'll, you'll, you'll discover the true source of humility. It's that reference that Jesus says, if you hunger and search for righteousness, you will be satisfied because your righteousness, not staying away from stuff, but actually allowing yourself to live out of the desires of who you are, will open a door for you so that you can become merciful. That you will show mercy. Now, if you, if you aren't sold on that yet, <laughs> Hebrew word for righteousness it's, is tzedak. Hebrew word for generosity is tzedakah. Only adds an A-H. Because in the Hebrew culture, it was impossible to think of righteousness and generosity apart from one another. So if you read the Bible 2,106 times, does the Bible connect righteousness and generosity with one another? You can't talk about righteousness without showing generosity. So if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the desires of your heart will open a door, but it's a door towards humility. (laughs) It's not a door towards status or position or anything else, if you hunger, truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, this pursuit of righteousness will unearth the deepest desires that God has placed in you. And those deep desires, think of this, will become the doorway to full satisfaction. But it's a doorway that's going to surprise you. It's a doorway that will lead you to the humble, to the broken, to the oppressed. Realizing that what God has given in you, the desires, the the true righteousness that is in you, will only ever be satisfied if you give what is in you to those who need to receive, who are humble, who are oppressed, who who are downtrodden. So it changes the whole scope of asking the question, what do I want? We know the comments and the sayings that says our biggest problem is that we want too little. Um, We've positioned ourselves in our life that we want too little. But this reference brings us to a place that righteousness and generosity paves the door. It opens the door for us to show mercy to others. To show others that there's a real God who loves them dearly. Now, if righteousness and generosity is paired, guess um, what sits on the other side? Greed and wickedness. That there's, there's this incredible connection between greed and wickedness and this connection between righteousness and generosity. And if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, guess what Jesus is constantly doing? He's building the platform for righteousness 
and generosity and is challenging the platform for greed and wickedness. That's the big story. And those, those two worlds collide in the best way when you are confronted with someone that needs to receive mercy from you. That it's in the moment where you have the opportunity to show mercy that it'll either show in your heart, do you have a righteousness that leads to generosity? Or do you have a greed that leads to wickedness, that leads to withholding? See, righteousness is all about entering a doorway into your deepest desires with true humility and generosity. I want to say that again. Righteousness is all about entering a doorway into your deepest desires with humility and generosity, understanding that your desires could be what is uh, your desires, and unearthing your desires could be the one thing that needs to be unearthed for us to solve some of the biggest problems that our community, the people around us face at this moment. If you look at how the Salvation Army started, how something like World Vision started, how something like Compassion started, it started with something way bigger than we've got to do something good for them. It started with someone's passion someone's desire, someone that carried something so deep inside of them that they said, we've got to do something about this. Asking the question in our community, what are the obvious areas of mercy that we have to do something about it, but we've chosen to withhold, to not act in a righteous way, to not be merciful in those moments. See, Incarnation brings us to this little understanding. Listen to what the Bible says about what Jesus said. He said, for this reason, he had to be made like them. Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of people. That word atonement, atonement means that he might make reparation, that he will fix the sins of people. So why did Jesus come? He came down, he became one of us, he actually entered our world, he understood, he felt exactly what we felt, and in feeling what we felt, he could, as the perfect sacrifice, begin the process of repairing what, this, what sin has broken. Interesting thing that got me there is that he became a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God. And because he chose a route and a way of service to God, he made atonement. So that brought me to a very interesting portion of Scripture that we all know well if we've spent some time in church for a while. Romans 12. I'm not going to unpack the word therefore. We've done that before. But listen to what Paul says. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what? In view of what? How often do we talk about the scripture, quote the scripture, and we leave the part of mercy out of it? We focus on offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. What view, what paradigm do we need for that to happen? The paradigm of God's mercy. If you offer your body, if you offer your life as a sacrifice without the paradigm of mercy, what are you doing? Achieving your own righteousness? Chasing your own little, hey, I'm doing this, guys. 
if you're not doing it based, um, filtered through the mercy of God, your life will never become a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Interesting. <laughs> We've made worship all about singing. What the Bible does with worship sometimes is completely different. Singing is a part thereof. But in the Bible, worship constitutes acts of sacrifice. But everything done in view of His great mercy for us. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. What was the pattern in the Roman Empire? Mercy was a weakness. It was, it was a disease. You should walk away. So Paul comes and he says, you can't pattern your life according to what happens in the empire. You should be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You should unearth what sits in there. Trust that the, that the desires of your heart will suddenly bring a whole new reference of life to your mind. So many times we've used this as a self-help reference. Saying that now I'm going to quote the Bible, and the more I quote the Bible, the more I'm going to think like I should, and then suddenly everything's going to fix, and I do it for 21 days, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. But I want to say, the best way to renew your mind is to give yourself to mercy. Start living it. Start giving yourself to the oppressed. One moment of giving yourself to the oppressed will rewrite what sits in you in a way that nothing else can ever do. It's more than self-help. Paul comes and he says, you will be able through this to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans 12. I want to show you something before we end. If you have your Bibles with you. The question is, how does Paul actually explain that? The portion straight after, he says, we're all in a body, and he speaks about the fact that there's different gifts in the body. But then suddenly in verse 9, he starts explaining the detail of, living, of being a living sacrifice, of not conforming to this world, of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, of testing the, the good, perfect, and um, acceptable will of God. Guess how he explains it. Read this. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Suddenly. <laughs> it's, it gets interesting. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And then he takes the next, next step. So that's all for the insiders. So he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Even the Broncos after last week. Difficult, but we can do it. Be willing, listen to that. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. He takes another step. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's Judgment, God's wrath, for it is written, 
um, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And sometimes God does it way different than what we think he will. He makes this comment. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Which I think is probably one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible. Because we think if we do that, if we give him something to eat, and if we give him something to drink, we're going to burn the life out of him. If we take it literally, that's more or less what it says. But actually what happened is if you had a friend, one of the most, uh, one of the most precious commodities in that time was keeping a fire going. So if you had a friend that visited with you, and they went home, and they, their fire went out, they had to wait to get a fire going in order to get food going, in order to get everything going. So what you would do to your friend is when they left your house, they had a little thing that they carried on their heads, you would give them some of your fire to take home. So when they got home, they actually could just use that fire to rekindle their fire and life goes on as normal. What Paul is saying is not give them food and give them water so that you can burn the life out of them. He says, treat your enemies as your friends. Treat them as someone whom you love. Just do it in the opposite spirit. In doing that, that's the way that you offer your life to God in view of His great mercy. That's the way that your mind is being renewed, where it's not about me and my spiritual growth and all my spiritual stuff, but it's understanding that everything in terms of God's mercy is to position me to understand that I've got to sacrifice my, my life, I've got to change my mind, and I've got to give myself to the oppressed, the lonely, to what brings peace, to what brings life. He concludes by saying, he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Different. Why do we have 120 kids in Thailand that we support? We love them. We care for them. It's not just something that we tick off the list saying, at least I'm doing something. We want to see communities thrive. Why do we support chaplains in our local schools? Because mercy says that you enter into their world. We're not going to sit in the office waiting for someone to walk through the door so that we can help them. We're sending people into our communities. Why do we have kids going to old um, age care homes? Because we want to train them from the word go that mercy is all about entering their world. Why do we have to consider mercy? Because it gives us the capacity to understand that life is so much bigger than us. Life is about what God has given to us, our desires and our capacity, our righteousness and our generosity, that that opens the door to the humble. Every gift you have, every resource you have, is firstly there to position you, secondly to be there as a resource to build the kingdom, to bring kingdom from heaven to earth. So Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. What did we say? What is mercy? Mercy is entering the trage tragedies, failings, and injustices of those with compassion. What is Jesus saying? He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive what? They will receive mercy. They will receive something from God where God will enter their tragedies, their brokenness, their disappointments. 
that in doing this, there's moments in your life where it's going to feel like I'm emptying myself and it feels like nothing. But the blessing in this is in doing this, God is the one who will ensure, who will take responsibility to ensure that the kingdom of heaven will come to you. That in doing this, in you giving your desires and your resources, your righteousness, your generosity to what sits in front of, in front of you, the broken, the oppressed, um, the, the, the run down, the sick, the anxious, whoever they are, you doing that opens the door for you to see God. Because if we do it in a way that's driven from purity, the next beatitude said, the pure of heart will see God. Most purest thing that we can do is not try and be pure. Pharisees tried a whole lifetime of that. Jesus knocked them. The purest thing that you can do with your life is not to be pure, not to try and be pure. The purest thing that you can do is to start living beyond yourself. Promises, if you do that, you'll see that God will enter your world. And if you do that, the purity of your heart will attract God's attention that you would see him in the areas of life that you felt he's not there, he's not visible, he's not available. Every time I've walked into areas in Africa where I've seen oppression and need and challenge, I've seen the presence of God in a way that astounded me. There's one thing that I realize every time I walked away from that, that God is with those who need mercy. In our context, in our city, in our nation, in our community, we've got to consider God. What does mercy look like in this space and in this place? There's people all around us. Every day we go to work, people in our homes, there's people in our streets, our neighbors, in the sporting clubs, that need mercy and you have the gift you have the desire if you just allow yourself God's given you the resources just got to work on generosity but if you do that it'll open the door to the humble where suddenly God will open himself up to you that's the blessing that's the gift so the cross for us is this incredible picture where Jesus didn't expect us to do this and then wait for it. The cross is the picture where he says, receive mercy from me. So when I wrote that down, I just stopped. And I prayed, I said, thank you, Jesus. Because of your cross, you entered my world. Just think about the implication of that. Because of the cross, because of the incarnation, Jesus didn't sit in heaven saying, ah, oh, one day. He did it for us. He entered our world, bringing us the mercy so that we receive. And in a moment, we're going to share in communion. And I want to ask you to, to think about the mercy that you've been given, the mercy that you've received. But then, communion is, is, is something so beautiful that as we take these emblems, the bread and the blood, as we eat them, as we drink them, it, be, it becomes part of us. And suddenly, it's not just about us receiving, but we become partakers of the divine nature of God. And what does God want to bring? 
mercy. He wants us to share. He's trusting that we, that our lives will become uh, um, flesh and blood for His presence. That we would search out brokenness. That we would search out the oppressed in our life spheres. And that we would bring mercy. That we would bring a reparation, a restoration to that which is broken. Last night I did something stupid. And I hurt my wife by something stupid that I said. Woke up early this morning and God said, you know what, Clinton? This starts at home. It was just a stupid comment, didn't think about it, but I knew I heard it. Guess what happened this morning? I had to step into her world and I had to say, sorry. That was unnecessary. I realized it was a by-the-way comment. But it begins with something as almost stupid as that. Can you fix in your own home? Can you fix in your family? Can you fix in the spaces that you love being in? Because as it cascades from those little experiences, it cascades into every other part of our life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that mercy was one of the big revelations of the Old and the New Testament. That yes, you forgave us of our sins and we are so thankful for that. But thank you that with that, Lord, you were merciful. You entered into our brokenness. You entered into our misery. And you came and you brought reparation. You brought restoration to us. You gave us merciful, Lord so that we could become merciful, actually overflowing with mercy. Lord, that gift wasn't a gift just for us. It's a gift to share. So this morning, Lord, we as a congregation want to be a congregation that chooses the pathway of mercy, that chooses uh, the pathway of actually allowing you to access the desires of our heart and the resources that we have so that we could bring mercy to those around us. Lord, but more than just bringing it to those around us, Lord, I want to pray that mercy would so um, disrupt our sense of comfort that we would start searching out the oppressed, that we would search out the broken, that we would search out the sick, the anxious, the downtrodden, to the point that we would be in the position as you were to share this gift of mercy that will bring reparation to them. So I pray, Lord, that mercy would be received and shared this morning. Pray that we would experience you entering our life, but because of that, Lord, that we would enter the lives of other people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to come forward to take part in communion as we consider just this incredible gift that Jesus has brought for us. Thanks.